Welcome to AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get support and guidance through the chaos of parenting. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. I hope you're having an amazing day. And today we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how and when to advocate for your child when they have anxiety and OCD. And I'm bringing in Corey from the website Corey at Home. And Corey is a New York mom blogger. She has a website that just helps people who are going through motherhood find their identity. And she has her own special needs kids. And she has gone through the educational system and she has learned how to advocate for her kids. And she has a lot of resources and online classes on how to teach parents to advocate for their kids. So that is something that we can all use because when to involve the school is a question I get all of the time. And so Corey and I get into it and talk about when should you do it? How should you do it? And why should you do it? So here's Corey. All right. Well, I want to introduce Corey to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we are going to get into all about how to advocate for our kids, which is actually really helpful that you're coming on because that's not my forte. And, you know, I try to help people, you know, I try to help navigate them, but I don't really, it'd be nice to, to pick your brain about the process and how to empower parents to do that. So, but before we start, let's just talk about who you are and how you got started doing this. Okay, well, I am Corey, and I run a blog called Corey at Home, which is finally um, getting my direction into helping parents of special needs kids kind of bring balance to the parenting, to the homemaking, to the self-care. A lot of my stuff is for parents of autistic kids, but I try to do special needs in general as well. and the reason I got into it is because I have a child, well, not a child. She will be 18 on her next birthday. She's on the autism spectrum. And I have a almost 21-year-old son who is, uh, has ataxic cerebral palsy, which is one of the most rare and um, probably the most mildest form, and a nonverbal learning disorder that he recently found out is very similar to having high functioning or Asperger syndrome. In addition to those two, I also have a five-year-old who is slightly on the gifted side and um, spirited. So that's how I, I kind of got into this. It was, uh, well, this is my story. This is how I'm going to share it. And uh, the main reason I got into this direction in particular is because I was hoping to be able to reach and help parents who are going through the same things that I went to in terms of like reconciling with their child's diagnosis. Um, my hope was that I would be able to give them like a, a, a particular spot where they could find all the things that they need, or at least point them in the right direction just because it was so different back then. And like, I remember how much I struggled. So if I can help at least one parent kind of avoid that struggle, then it feels like I've really done my job. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents just don't know where to begin. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes I think asking for help in the school, especially when you're talking about kids with anxiety and OCD in my world, it's almost 
acknowledging and making public your child's issues. A lot of times it only shows up at home or if it's showing up at school, the the teacher and the administration, they're not necessarily seeing it. So right. like with other issues um, and maybe with autism or ADHD for sure and other like mental health issues, the teachers and the administration is knocking on your door. Like, yep. we need to have an IEP meeting. Yes. We need to have a meeting. Um, we need to do something. And with with the parents that I'm working with, that typically isn't happening. Sometimes it is, but typically mm-hmm. it's not. And so it's this awkward period where you're like, I know my kid's struggling, but they're going to just tell me, well, your child is like incredibly smart or maybe even gifted, like your five-year-old. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they're my model student. Like, why would they need an IEP or a 504? But let me back up for a second because I'm sure there's parents out there who don't even know what an IEP or 504 plan Mm -hmm. is. Sure, sure. And for those that are not in America, this is a very American um, language and this is an American process as far as what these things are for our school systems. But we're going to talk about how to advocate in general. So whether you live in Australia or the UK or whatever or Canada, I'm sure you have your version of what we're about to talk about. So we'll try to talk about it in broad terms as well. Yes, absolutely. What is a 504? What is an IEP? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm more familiar with a IEP than I am with the 504. But what they both are, they're plans, written plans that are put into place for a child um, in the school system, developed usually by the parents, a team of educators um, with input you know, from different specialists to provide support and structure for a child with uh, either with a developmental disability or sometimes with what we call those invisible disabilities or disorders, like, as you said, Ed mentioned, um, ADHD, uh, anxiety, sensory processing disorder, um, autism, and any other number of related kind of things. So essentially what it boils down to, it's just having a plan in place that can be used in the classroom that's best going to support the child learn and kind of, you know, help manage their time. Yeah. And I think, um, and I can speak on the 504. So most of the kids that, that I work with and probably in my audience, they're not going to qualify for an IEP. Um, Mm -hmm. They're not having any significant cognitive delays, most Mm -hmm. of them. And they're not going to qualify. Their needs aren't so intense that they need a formalized IEP. I always look at IEP as the big kahuni, you know, and like the 504 is like the little mini kahuni. It's like yeah. 504 is like, well, you need help, but like not that much, you know, like right. we need to accommodate you and, and it needs to be formal. And I will go on my soapbox about this in a second, but I feel like, right. you know, you do want a formal plan if your child needs some sort of accommodations, because even if you have an amazing teacher and Corey, you can pipe in, I'm sure that you've got opinions about this too. Like even if you have an amazing teacher one year and you're like, you know, they're, they're accommodating my child's needs without having to have a meeting and have it in writing. I always encourage parents, no, get it in writing, make it legal because next year might be a totally different thing. Absolutely. And that is so important, um, especially just in terms of providing the consistency and the structure and the routine. Um, most importantly, it's just the consistency so that no matter how the, the classroom environment changes, um, 
or the teacher changes, there's at least this known set of, well, here are the strategies that work with this child. Just, it makes it, I think, a lot easier, um, not just on the teaching side of it, but obviously on the student, you know, on the child. Yeah. Ultimately, what we all want is to have these things in place that make it easiest for our kids. Mm -hmm. So how, how can you tell when you should start advocating for your child in the educational system? For the educational system, it's usually when you start noticing that there, you know, you might be getting more letters sent home. Um, It's for pointing out your child's behavior in the classroom. Or, you know, if your teacher is addressing like one issue in particular over and over and over again, and especially when you start seeing those things at home, because you might already see them at home, but you don't really think too much about them because it's at home and you are one-on-one with them. You can control the environment um, a lot easier, I think. But if you're sitting in the classroom, sometimes it's hard to troubleshoot that because there are other students there. There's just so much going on. Uh, depending on what the age they are, it's not the same teacher from you know subject to subject or class to class. So yeah, but definitely when the when you're starting to see like similar or consistent behavioral issues being brought up um, either by the child's teacher or by another administrative like support staff, then I would say it's time to really address it uh, yeah. before it becomes, before it escalates further. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I always say to parents, you know, be proactive mm-hmm. and tell, at least start off telling your teacher that your child has, and and I'm mainly talking about anxiety and OCD. Right. I know, right. you know, you're like a master in the, the autism world <laughs> and people should definitely visit your site and look at those resources because I know there are parents who are listening who have kids with dual diagnoses. So mm-hmm. definitely have people on the spectrum as well. And you are, you'd be a, an amazing resource for that. <laughs> so, but when I'm talking about anxiety and OCD, I think you want to give your teacher a heads up. I think a lot of times parents- Oh, absolutely. They, they're like, like my son who's nine um, and actually my daughter who is seven, I always tell the teacher at the beginning of the year, I try to find like some sort of nonchalant way to be like, oh, and by the way, like she's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, by the way, you know, he's got some issues and, and I'm doing that proactively so that when they see something, because I think with anxiety and OCD, a lot of times it's subtle. Oh when yeah. It's not subtle. Absolutely. When it's not subtle, you're like, you know, like, okay, mm-hmm. I need to, the school will let you know, like, right. <laughs> but it's, I think for the most part, a lot of times it's super subtle. It's like a lot of school refusal, mm-hmm. a lot of not wanting to go to school, a lot of uh, panic and perfectionism and things that just don't show up yep. like overtly. So yeah, I would, I would say parents to let the teacher know and open that line of communication. Cause sometimes the teacher is nervous to like email you. Oh, sure. Because they're like, you know, I don't, I don't know how they feel. But if you say, hey, you know, welcome to this year. This is my kid. These are all the amazing things that they do. Mm-hmm. And these are their strengths. And by the way, these are things that make them really anxious. So if he's sitting there in the corner, right. falling up paper or whatever, you know, or picking his nails, this is what's going on about that. And you can email me if you see those behaviors. Right. Oh, absolutely. I think that's so important. And um, it's one of the things that we've done in the past for my autistic daughter, even though like she's been in a private school setting, but it's a 
a student letter that we do at home. And it just gives like this breakdown profile of, okay, these are her things. These are her, you know, these are the things that really set her off. And these are the ways that she exhibits, okay, this is slightly annoying me to, this is really going to set me off and upset the rest of my day. So I think, you know, similar to how we as parents get the meet the teacher letter, I don't think it could hurt for parents to send that kind of thing back to a teacher, just, you know, giving them a little overview of their child. You never know how much of a difference it's going to make in the school year. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think do that introduction, even if you want to wait a few weeks, if your child's issues are not that acute, but definitely in the first month, make that introduction. I think that's really important. So when, when should parents, when should they move into the more formalized world of IEPs or 504s? I think you need to move into the more formalized when, you know, you're, if you're giving back some suggested strategies that you know are going to work and they either aren't being implemented correctly or they just aren't being implemented at all which can be incredibly frustrating because at that point, you know, you've taken the time to address the issue on your end. You've taken the time to address the issue to the teacher and to provide the strategies. But it's important to keep in mind too, that your teachers, your child's teacher is just that they're the teacher. They don't have the one-on-one that you would with your child. They have who knows how many other students that they have to be mindful of and pay attention to and meet the needs of. So I'm not trying to put the blame on the teachers at all, you know, just but to be mindful of that as a parent. But yeah, when it gets to the point that you you aren't seeing much of a difference and much of a change, I would start to the procedure for either um, a 504 plan, or if it does come down to it, start the procedures for an IEP meeting. So do they have to put that request in writing? Yes. For it to be? Yes. That needs to be made in writing. Um, It will all depend on your school district as to how to go about that. But you can check with your state's or your city's school district or county school district for how to start either the IEP or the 504 process, depending on your child's diagnosis. Okay. Because I do, I always say to parents, um, put it in writing. (laughs) Yes. Because I know... I'm pretty sure, and again, this is not my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. I only know it just through helping families, but I believe in Arizona, you need to put it in writing for it to be legal, but I could be wrong. Yes. And it's yes. always good to have a paper trail. So um, no matter whether it is legal versus not legal, it's just good to, to formalize it. Because a lot of times parents will say to me, you know, Natasha, I, I talked to the vice principal or I talked to the teacher or I talked to the counselor and you know, I just asked them if we can start a 504 plan and they're going to get back to me. And it's all this just verbal conversational stuff. And then they'll come back like three months later and they'll be like, you know, I don't know why they're, no one's getting back to me. So that becomes a struggle. So they, they may not do stuff because it's not in writing. And so, cause it's mm-hmm. not, it's not formalized. And so even if you have the best relationship with the school administration and the teacher, still just casually put it in writing and hand it to them or do it in an email. I don't know if email is legal, but definitely formalize it in that way. Oh, absolutely. And then if you have that in writing, then you have pretty much the structure or at least the jumping off point if it needs to go into more into the 504 or into an IEP. Yeah. Because you've already put it into writing. So it it's definitely helpful to have that set up. Yeah. And 
And I always tell people, gather your information before you even start it. And I don't know what. Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so what should um, people do to prepare? I would have any, any communication that you've had back and forth between your child's teacher or other school staff is really important. Um, if your child has to see a therapist for any sort of, um, whether they have an official diagnosis or, you know, whatever the case may be, have that, especially for IEP meetings, because that's a special education piece. And usually for a fi- an IEP, you need to have, um, I think it's either a medical diagnosis or an educational, uh, yeah, you need to have a, a diagnosis from a, from a certified a specialist in order to get the IEP stuff in place. So that's the other big, big difference between the IEP and the 504. Um, The IEP usually requires that diagnosis to be in place, which is a whole other realm of testing and evaluations, screenings. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and in, in, in the anxiety and OCD world, you probably have a therapist um, or a psychiatrist or a nurse, psych- psychiatric nurse practitioner or someone that's on your team, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe you don't, but if you do, I always say, get them to write a clinical summary. And yes. a lot of times I have, um, I have written clinical summaries for kids who they're not going to get a 504 plan, but just for the teacher. And you can ask your therapist for that. And hopefully they're willing, you know, I'm always willing where I know it's going to help the child. And so I'll just say clinical summary. These are their issues. This is their diagnosis. And for some parents, they don't want me to write the diagnosis enough, <laughs> you know, and then I'll just be like, right. these are the things that trigger them. And these are the things that could possibly help. And then I like, I'll just list them out. This is a trigger. This could possibly help. This is an issue. This could possibly help. You don't have to use the word trigger, but whatever. And, and definitely if you're going to ask for a 504 plan, you'd want something like that from your therapist. Oh, absolutely. And then even for, um, if it goes beyond the 504 and into the IEP phase, that's huge. And the child therapist or any type of uh, therapist for a child, whether it's a psychologist or psychiatrist, ends up or should be part of a child's IEP team meeting, um, or at least part of that, you know, having that input in there because they are one facet of who knows the child and how they know the child. Yeah. I don't really, I can't go to IEP meetings, but because <laughs> definitely support it with a letter for sure. Right. You know? oh, no, absolutely. It's just having that kind of input. And then, you know, because as parents, I think we tend to take, sometimes we're a little bit too close to the situation. Um, and it's through no fault of our own. Obviously there are kids. We might not be willing to see the bigger picture um, for whatever reason or another. And then other times it is because, and we're so involved in things like there's just so much that makes it difficult for us to be able to piece out certain things for to address certain things. Yeah. So let's go and talk a little bit. You have a lot of resources for parents who might be thinking, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming. Anything beyond just talking to the teacher, I'm out of my comfort zone and I don't even know where to begin or how to start this. And I know you have a lot of resources and you have an online course actually that helps parents learn how to advocate for their kids, which is so cool. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I started because I was thinking about, well, I was going through a bunch of paperwork 
And I came back upon my daughter's first IFSP um, meeting records. And it brought me back to the point with my son and sitting at the IEP meeting, just kind of like with this deer in the headlights look and just being so overwhelmed with everything that was going on and just kind of saying yes to things because I didn't know any better. Um, and just, you know, wanting to, to be in the best interest of him and trusting that the other professionals involved had my son's best interest at heart. Of course, I'm, I'm sure they did. And her, and I felt so much more like equipped and a little bit more confident at that point that I could speak up and ask the questions, but I wasn't quite sure. It's like, all right, well, I know her and I know that she does these things at home and this is what we do at home. But then it wasn't until later like that I really realized, just like, all right, well, these are the questions that I need to ask because these are the things that we need to have addressed. And if I'm not going to say anything, who else is going to say something? So the course was developed because of that, uh, based on my own personal experiences, personal struggles, really, with um, becoming confident enough to ask the questions, to get the right answers, and to get things in place. Um, not just for her IEP, but just in general. And so the course itself, starting this particular journey, it's a little more more of an overview too on the special education process in general. And then, you know, learning how to sit in the meetings, how to, the ownership of your personal story, because that's such a key and pivotal part of advocating in general is knowing and obviously, you know your story, but it's learning how to tell it in such a way that makes the most impact, which some of us might struggle with. And then you know, really like what you do beyond that, but teaching them how to become their own advocate. Because with one of my kids, I was he can do that. With my other child, she can't. So there's that piece of it. So it's giving parents a little bit of preparation for that too. It was taken from all the, the struggle and... Um, frustration that I felt throughout yeah. the IEP process and throughout the years really of, you know, not of realizing it's like, well, I, I have the means and the wherewithal to really be a driving force at these meetings. Why am I not taking action on it? So after finally, you know, stop, I stopped questioning myself and I put my foot down. I was like, well, this is my daughter. I am at home with her. I, I see her the most. Yeah. I know these things work. Why are you questioning me when these things? Yeah. And I think so much of it is about your mindset, you know, to, yes. to feel, I like the way you said, like, know how to tell your story. Like we know our story, but how do we tell it in the best way that we're heard? And a lot of it has to do with confidence to be yes. not overwhelmed and not intimidated by this, these group of professionals who are sitting around a table and feeling, you know, sometimes ganged up on that you, you're not allowed to say anything and that they know your child better than you do, which is obviously not the case. It's, that's ridiculous. And that is so, but it is so true. That is, I think the first thing that parents need to, uh, to realize is that yes, these are professionals. Yes, they have the certifications and the credentials, but you are their parent. This is your child, period. Yeah. So I will leave a link below in the show notes um, okay. and on my website for people to access your course, because I think that could be really helpful for people sure. to 
to have a resource where it walks them through how to feel empowered, how to go through this process and, um, and then confront this, not confronts a horrible word, but, and then approach the school, yes. <laughs> the, approach the school in a kind, warm hearted sort of way and get sure. and advocate your child and your child's needs. And some schools are amazing and mm-hmm. I'm wildly impressed with what they will do. Yes. And some schools are, um, it's very upsetting what they'll do. So yep. there's just such a spectrum of, of quality that goes into oh, what they're going to do. Absolutely. It's just in the United States alone. I, I can't obviously speak to other countries, but parents that I've spoken to, you know, some who are in New York, um, I live in New York, and then I've spoken to parents who are in the Midwest and their experience there, it's like so much different than mine. Like, wow. And then I see it in other parent groups as well that, you know, we're comparing our experiences from state to state. And especially right after you get the diagnosis for your child, it's the, well, what's the best state to live in for <laughs> diagnosis? I'm like, well, that really depends a on the diagnosis and B, um, how much of a voice a parent is willing to have. Yeah. And I mean, I think it could even depend on the school. I mean, and it also I even, depends on the school. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. I don't even know if you can say state to state. There are amazing schools here in Arizona mm-hmm. and there are schools that are like not showing yeah. up. Yeah. It's, there's so many different variables just with everything and it, which makes it frustrating because you can't boil down. Like I would love to be able to help as many parents as possible with the just becoming an advocate, but I can't because I'm not in each state. I can't, you know, or even each city. Yeah. I don't yeah. always know all the answers, but it's my hope though, that with this course, I can at least give you that starting off point of, you know, just equipping yourself and getting those mindset shifts and then take it from there. Yeah. And I think that's, that's huge though, because that's a very big part of it is feeling confident in yourself to be able to advocate for your child. And then once you have that, you know, then you can really approach things in a really effective way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming on, Corey. I really appreciate it. And hopefully people will check out your course and maybe hopefully this has motivated some people to say, you know what, I I need to go to the school and advocate. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. That's my hope. All right. Well, take care. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, I hope you found that interview and that conversation helpful. And if anything, my whole message is to really think about how you can advocate for your children, because even if you think it's so minor, it's not a big deal. At the very least, you do want to let your child's teacher know some of their struggles because they are with your child for hours and hours a day and they might see things that you're not seeing and the anxiety or OCD may show up at school in a different way or completely at school and you don't realize that because your child's not communicating that. And if your teacher has that on their radar, they're more likely to email you and say, oh, you know what? I did see that. Or today it looked like she had a hard time. And I do that with my own kids in a very casual sort of way. I reach out and I email the teachers, let them know, hey, these are the things that are going on with them. And I'm opening up that line of communication. So hopefully that will inspire you to do that as well. So I hope that you're enjoying the show. If you're finding my podcast helpful, there are many ways to give back. 
Two of them are very simple. If you can just hit a star on iTunes and rate the show, I greatly appreciate that. If you have a little extra time, 10 seconds extra, you can leave a review and let other parents know that you're getting something from the podcast. So I hope you find the sparkle in everything you do. And I will talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. When I first discovered Natasha, I was in a desperate place with my son and his anxiety was getting worse and we had tried counseling and it was not going well. Natasha gave us practical tools. She wasn't like the books that we had read that were, you know, you have three kids, but somehow you can magically spend 10 hours a day on your one anxious kid and just, you know, life is great for the other two. She's helped me understand OCD on a level that no therapist I have come across seems to understand. Natasha had practical real-life advice that we started implementing the day that we listened to them. Not only did it help with our son's anxiety, it helped my husband and I recognize um, the anxiety that we had in our parenting that was actually contributing to our children's anxiety. Her tools are, I mean, life-changing. She has been amazing, and I'm so thankful for the work that she provides to all of us who have children um, who battle anxiety and OCD. It is so exciting to see him about a year later just thriving in school. She really has guided us the whole way, and without her, our lives would be very different. Very grateful. My husband and I are forever grateful to Natasha Daniels for helping us to figure out where to even start with anxiety. If you have a child with anxiety or OCD, she is your go-to woman. Parenting a child with anxiety is not easy, and sometimes it feels hopeless. And um, in a desperate time in my journey with my son, I started searching the internet and found Natasha Daniels. She has been a lifesaver. Her resources have given me hope. They've given me tools and support, and I I highly recommend her and her resources. They are phenomenal, and they are some of the best resources you can find out there for anxiety and OCD. Parenting a child with anxiety and OCD can be a confusing and lonely journey. It can leave you feeling hopeless and overwhelmed, but it doesn't have to be that way. Join me this January as I begin a new adventure, forming a new community where I'll be walking with you, supporting you, and building your skills and confidence to help your child not only survive, but thrive. I will get to know you and your family on a deeper, more personal level. I'll be able to give you guidance based on your needs and your situation. I hope you'll join me in this next chapter and see where it can bring you and your family. We don't get to choose if our child has anxiety or OCD, but we can choose what we do about it. To learn more about the AT Parenting Community, go to anxioustollers.com forward slash community or get on the wait list to join by texting AT Parent with no space to 44222. Together we can do this. She's really good and I hope I'll be like her. I have had OCD for over five years. I have trained my brain and you can do the same thing.